Find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. We were at a special event, which was the Coxie Space Day. There we had the chance to talk to a great variety of different people and talk about their fields of interest. May they be students or professors. We talked about various aspects of cognitive science, such as neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy or artificial intelligence, and many more. All the interviews were kept rather short, and another exception of our bonus episodes will be that not only Zünke and me are hosting, but also our two amazing producers, Alina and Sophie, and both will jump into this role of being an interviewer. So stay curious and tune in. Hello and welcome. Um, I would like to ask you to introduce yourself with your uh, name, position and your field of interest. Yeah. So I'm Peter König. I'm a professor for neurobiopsychology here at the Institute of Cognitive Science. And uh, I'm here for 25 years by now. My field of interest is, let's say the common bracket is embodied cognition. So how the mind the brain interact with the world, also by means of the body. To be specific, I think that it's super important to look at the brain in order to understand the mind, but it will not be sufficient. We will have to investigate the interacting brain with the world. And in a deep sense, this is also a necessary condition for understanding consciousness. Okay. And we're going to start with a quick welcome question. So as a kid, I always wanted to be. Oh, <laughs> I didn't have a clear vision uh, what I want to be. So of course, traveling at some point, I found locomotives, super exciting. So on my path to elementary school, I walked, let's say, a few hundred meters parallel to the tracks. And it was a time where there were actually steam engines and these big metal pieces uh, were pretty exciting. But it was not a particular wish to be a certain profession. So actually when I got my matura, so my abitur, I did not exactly know what to study. And I decided for physics, I thought, well, it's the most fundamental. So I don't give away anything. I can still specialize later. And uh, in my career, it was also driven by accidents, by people, that I'm where I am now. Okay. Um, and how would you explain your research or your main field of interest if I were a kid of roughly 10 years old? Okay. I would first say, amazing that you are interested in that stuff. <laughs> I really think this is super cool. And... My desire to learn, I would like to understand the world and what is, let's say, right now we think physics in principle can explain everything. We don't know everything, we are far from it, but there is no principled gap where we say, well, no, this is outside of physics, we cannot understand it, with the exception of consciousness. If you ask, okay, how does from the movement of electrons and atoms arise consciousness, we have no idea. And this was not a proper citation, but Emile de Barrymore has said something very similar 150 years ago, and it still stands. So think about it. The world is changing at such a rapid pace. What you have right now with 
internet, TikTok, Facebook, and, and all that stuff, it was not existent when I was your age. And nevertheless, something like that, so our understanding of us, what makes us that we are conscious of ourselves, you and I, we have no idea. Isn't this amazing? And this is what I want to understand. Yeah, it's mind-blowing, actually. Just for the audience, how would you, in your research, define consciousness? Okay, when I'm talking about consciousness, I'm talking about perceptual consciousness. When I open my eyes in the morning, so... <laughs> effortfully, I would say, I see this rich, structured, colorful world. And this is amazing. It hunts me all day long. And this is what I refer to. On top of that, of course, I can reflect. I can reflect, okay, I, I am and I can act and I have a certain self-consciousness. But also this is all super interesting. It has not the flavor of this principled gap. So I'm a physicist by education and I've inherited this slight arrogance. Well, everything is physics. Yeah, the chemists are doing cool stuff, but in principle they are physics. The chemists would say, well, in the beginning it was the other way around. The early physicists were actually more chemists than physics, but okay, that's, uh, that's like between brother and sister or so. And then I come back to this consciousness and see, well, there is a principal gap. There, of course, not just me, there are many people talking about it and there are proposals ranging from very molecular stuff. So, well, actually, um, so Penrose, an eminent scientist in the field of gravity, quantum physics and so on, has made a proposal that consciousness and conscious perception is actually a quantum effect, an effect of quantum gravity. And there are proposals ranging to the opposite extreme, that it's the largest structure, or proposals that it's a property of our universe. Let's say the integrated information theory, which is a mathematical term for any system. It is not specific to the brain. And so far we don't have a shortage of proposals, but I would gather that none of these captures more than five to 10 percent of all scientists behind itself. So there is a flurry of ideas, but little agreement. Yeah, and how did you come from physics to cognitive science? So how did you get from where you started to where you are at now? I have a very good question. So I went studying physics. I studied in Bonn and they were active in CERN with a big particle collider. So this is high energy physics, the highest energy, the smallest path, and in some sense also the largest structure in the universe because it all goes back to the Big Bang. And this is fascinating. But in the elevator I found their articles of my teachers and there were 200 authors. It is big collaboration. And also I love to collaborate, but let's say on a personal level to discuss. And there were statements, well, I want to change this verb in the first sentence on page two. That's not me. That's not yeah. me. So I was interested in complex systems and was looking out. And my sister studied medicine, so I got her physiology book and thought, well, actually it's interesting. And I wanted to enter a course which is of course not possible because it's highly regulated and so on. I said, okay, you want it, I study medicine. So I studied medicine and uh, when all that does, 
was done and finished. I wondered well, now what do I do with it? And I remember I wrote a couple of applications. Um, I think seven in total. So I was invited at a few and uh, bought a train ticket. So a little bit similar like the Deutschland ticket and I traveled <laughs> the different places and talked to the people. And I remember vividly there is a Fraunhofer Institute in Stuttgart who are doing amazing stuff with artificial kidneys. And you might imagine that's super relevant. So today the solution if you have a kidney failure is essentially that you hope that somebody else dies and gives you his kidneys. Yeah, let's say this is good, but this is not a mainstream solution, obviously. So this work was super important, but somehow the spark was not coming across. And I went to Frankfurt, Max Planck Institute for Brain Research, Wolf Singer, and I said, you had charisma. He was, he was amazing. And I thought, well, I have no idea what this guy is talking about, but this is what I want to do. And I never regret, I must say. So you kind of stumbled into it by coincidence yeah. and just uh, by, gut feeling or? No, people. People. People are important. I, by now, I don't think that there is one topic waiting for me or you out there in life, but you make the topic your own. And I made this topic my own. And if different circumstances, maybe it would have been archaeology. There's, there's interesting stuff, what's happening with all Asia, how people lived there, how they developed. And there are many questions, when did language arise, which are fundamental and important. I bet I could have been excited about archaeology as well. But it was a very personal decision. And yeah, I, I stand to it. I'd never regret also the reasoning for choosing this field. So did you then continue? So you studied physics, you studied medicine. Did you then continue with a PhD in the field of exactly. cognitive science? Exactly. I worked for okay. many years, I think six, seven years in Frankfurt together with Wolf Singer and many of his other collaborators. And it was a fantastic experience. I went to California for a few years uh, with Gerald Edelman, which was a different experience. And I uh, went to the Uh, Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, working with uh, Kevin Martin and Rodney Douglas, which was an amazing environment. So they were able to create a thriving community of young people and everybody had the feeling, okay, I can do what I want. I, I can go forward. I can tear apart myself and follow the ideas and do it. And see, when you come around, you pick up ideas. And here in Osnabrück, I tried to implement, let's say, the best of uh, these different places. Of course, it will be an own flavor and there will also be downsides. But definitely you take some ideas how everybody is acting from different places and take it with you. And I am somewhat consciously thought about, okay, what was cool in San Diego? What was cool in Frankfurt? What do I have to do? in order to do it. And well, I'm not Wolf Singer. No, I'm not. Um, so, and so far, it will be a variation of it. But in principle, you learn not only science, but you learn also about how life works in these different places and how to do stuff. And this is what I brought to Osnabrück. And here, I learned a lot as well. well I must say, to complete the course in Osnabrück, versus students.
which were utterly amazing. I have not seen something like that before. So on a student level, let's say bachelor and master students in Zurich, it was an amazing community, but of course it was PhD students and up. So the contact to the young students was much looser in some sense. And this was very, very different here. And this was an experience where you have not thought it was possible. So I would never have even tried to push in this direction, but to come here and say, okay, it was clear in the first term already. So after a few weeks with the lecture or so, the discussion with the students, I realized, hey, this is different here. And then you cope with it, you work with it. You've just been talking about the difference at the University of Osnabrück, or especially the cognitive science students in Osnabrück, and how they were different to what you had experienced before. But right now, when you're thinking about your research and what you're doing, is there anything where you feel like that's super surprising when you kind of get up and read something and you're like, wow, I did not expect that to happen. Is this, that still happen? Or are you so deep in your topic right now that you are not really surprised anymore? So you are talking now about the science yes, we are doing. Yes. Okay. So the science we are doing is to a good part technologically driven. So we can just do much more. So when I came into the field, people were recording with a single electrode. And taking two makes a qualitative difference. You can watch correlations, and that was new at that time. Nowadays, you can record thousands of neurons simultaneously. You have databases, so you don't have even to do it yourself. You can download the data and do with it. And that's a development in that speed I did not expect. I, I knew it was technologically driven, but the speed of development is amazing and breathtaking. And it's also actually demanding to keep up mm -hmm. with it. Because the young people come and learn and accompany you for some time and then pew, they, <laughs> they go ballistic. So that's, that I didn't expect. Regarding the results, so on one hand, I didn't expect that we have such a good coverage of what's, how neurons are active in the brain. Specific results, I must say, maybe more from the AI side. So in my career, the brain was always better. And at some point, okay, Kasparov lost to Deep Blue. Uh, and then the world champion Go player lost. And then the network started to talk. And it got more and more effortful to find niches where they don't perform well. And sure enough, ChatGPT has sometimes caused misunderstanding or a lack of understanding what it's talking about. On the other hand, I don't want to make it easy for me. It is this rapid development that we have an AI counterpart, which is in many aspects on par with humans. This makes this comparison, the interaction, so exciting. And this, this is an amazing development of the very last few years. So essentially since the last five years or so, have seen that. And simultaneously, if you look into the field, the technically oriented people, they don't care about the brain anymore. They say, well, it's the transformers. Do you have a transformer in the brain? You don't know, I don't care. And they go ahead and do the amazing machinery. 
And the neuroscientist people say, we don't know how to match the structures. We will stick to our brain, so to say. Leave us alone with your amazing machinery. And I think that's the wrong reaction. I think this is such a big opportunity right now, today, to bring together these streams, two streams of research to deepen our understanding. Right now, it's the fun part starts, so to say. In the beginning, you said a lot of your research revolves around the idea of how consciousness works. So how would you tie consciousness into this AI and uh, neuroscientific interaction? Yeah, so I have a twofold answer. So my own research with embodied cognition, initially I emphasized the body and interacting with the world. The idea is that the statistical relationships of your actions and how the sensory information changes determines the quality of perception. So, for example, if I move forward and backward, the, your face on my retina now expands and shrinks, but the acoustics in this room changes differently. And I know that. And this is the relation I've learned. We are learning as a baby, as a child. And we can actually define part as types of loss functions, what we learn at the at that age. And if that is true, so philosophers like Kevin O'Regan have put that forward, it could be tested. Therefore, we went ahead and built a new, trying to build a new sense. We took a magnetic compass, a belt, tactile elements, so that you have a vibration around your waist where the point of vibration is always pointing north. And uh, trying to understand what's happening. Are you learning a new sense? What do you learn? What is changing in the brain? How does it feel? And all these questions. Oh, that is a good part of my research. And this is geared at understanding how come the quality of our conscious perception, so that I don't mix up vision with audition, for example. If you are picky, and you should, you can say, Well, this explains the quality of perception and why different senses are perceived differently. It does not explain why you perceive in the first place. And they have to say, you are right. Yeah. I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, beyond, I do what I can. That's very interesting. You look lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a lot of thoughts, but I, I, I right now can't phrase them properly together. Yeah, recently read that for, I think it was in the book on intelligence, that the author said, I think his name is Hawkins, I forgot his first name, that he says having consciousness for him is more like the fact that people have a neocortex. So just what it feels to be conscious is to have a neocortex, but to me this answer seemed unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. It was quite, it appeared quite shallow, so, yeah. I agree, I agree. So the neocortex is important, and uh, I can bombard you with facts about the neocortex, but at no point you will say, ah, therefore, mm -hmm. there must be consciousness. So as an analogy, if I tell you about elementary particles, electrons, protons, electric fields, and weak force and so on, and you realize, well, sometimes an electron comes close to a proton and stays there for quite some time. That's a stable state. We call it an atom. Yeah, everybody would agree we now know what an atom is. It's a stable state of these elementary art particles and so on. 
And this understanding, okay, there must be consciousness. No, I, I don't see it. And this is what I meant, that there are proposals ranging from the most elementary physics, quantum gravity, up to properties of the universe, integrated information theory. Maybe one of these is correct. They are actually not literally mutually exclusive. So they, they could complement each other. So, and so far, maybe several of these are correct. But nobody knows why they should be correct. Beyond that, we know, well, we are conscious. Yeah. If we go back to picking up the new senses with mm -hmm. a vibrating belt, what did you find? Did people actually manage to pick up the new sense? And um, how, how did that look like? Okay. So the people had to train. Training means they walk around with the belt for six, seven weeks, uh, and we do our measurements in the last week. And so far it is not that you are tickled at the waist and you think, well, the space and north is also great. No, it has to be a statistical relation which is learned. Then we found that there are changes, for example, in the motor system and in the premotor system. Uh, relating to the stimulation by the belt, which shows that the belt is not just staying a sensory signal while it's tickling, but it influences and captures activity in your motor system. We showed that uh, there are changes in sleep patterns, so specifically REM sleep, where procedural knowledge like how to drive a bicycle is learned, con is, uh, is consolidated. And so we conjecture that what you are learning by training the belt is like procedural knowledge consolidated in the sleep phase. We have actually recently con uh, concluded a study in VR where we demonstrate the benefits for navigation. So there are allocentric systems, there are egocentric systems, good knowledge, survey knowledge. So this is a story of its own, where it helps and where it does not help that much. So this is, and then of course a question, how does it feel? And The disclaimer, none of our subjects said, well, the magnet field feels so nice today. Or North is beautiful. No, I was a subject in a pre-pre-cohort. So one of the very first bulky, clunky belts. And my friends wanted to tease me sometimes and ask, okay, Peter, where is North now? And I had actually to stop for a moment. Oh, yeah, da, da, da. There's North. Which is, of course, not what you are asking for. However, what is changing is your perception of space. So, for example, if you ask me now, okay, uh, how was it when I entered the door? Okay, I have an idea what is behind that wall with the hallway and so on. If you ask me, okay, where did I park my bicycle? I have to think and reason for a moment which direction my bicycle is. With a belt, you have the feeling you could reach out, like with a rubber hand getting longer and longer, I could touch my bike over there 100 meters or 150 meters. Or I, you could interact with a coffee, coffee cup in your office. So the sense of space is drastically transforms, let's say, the, your egocentric space where you have the orientation is 10 times larger. The subjects get problems with the notion of being present. You are present and I see you and to a large part this is congruent. If I don't see you anymore, I wouldn't say you are present. And the subjects 
when they give about their visits and people met and so on, and they said, well, they were present here, and they realized they were not actually visible, and started to explain, so they were confused in their concepts of presence. And so there is also presence beyond the visual space. And I bet when we would equip subjects in a little village in the Alps, secluded, where people talk a lot among each other, and maybe not that much to other people, they would develop their own terminology for the experience. And so far, yes, something is changing. It is not the primary sense. It is not literally a sense of the magnetic field, but a sense which is fueled by others. But please note, all subjects exclusively were adults. And we do know that something is changing in learning. So, for example, when you learn a foreign language, it's different with the age of six and the age of 16. That's the way it is. And I'm thinking sometimes to start a project working with kids, but of course, with, for ethical reasons, it must be beneficial for the kid in question. So we would need blind kids or kids which have orientation uh, problems and the project is not ripe yet. So I, I'm not there yet uh, say, okay, I have the view, that's the way we do. But this would be necessary to have the crucial test, whether we can learn genuinely a very basic primary new sensory modality. Okay, um, you said that um, during REM sleep and also the motor cortex is changing for the people who are not very familiar with neuroscience. How do you measure that? Oh, okay. Uh, that's a lovely question. Uh, so you take a big machine, a magnetic, uh, an fMRI. Uh, you need a strong magnetic field, therefore the coils are so big. So if you have a little motor in your toy set, Lego or so, you have a similar construction, just much larger, with, which makes a very strong magnetic field. And you need to know when neurons are active, they consume energy and they ask for more blood supply. This is pretty similar when you race with your bike. You, your muscles want to have more energy, so the heart is starting to pump. And when you are active in your brain, in some sense, the neurons also demand more energy and more blood is coming to the respective places. Now, blood is pretty specific. They are red blood cells and they have this hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is a molecule which transports oxygen to your muscles, to your brain. And in this hemoglobin, there is one atom of iron. And magnetic field iron, the magnetic properties of iron change when it carries oxygen or when it does not carry oxygen. So this is like a satellite which watches all the traffic in a city but can differentiate whether the lorries are loaded or the lorries are empty. And then it can think about, okay, there where the lorries are unloaded, there will be activity, something is happening. There is food delivered to a restaurant, new garment to shops and so on. And this is done with this machine which operates using these big magnetic fields. And this we used, so we have nice images of where in the brain we have activity when the belt is active and subjects are navigating in a virtual world. 
and from comparison experiments, we do know where areas in the brain are which are active when you move your muscles, when you open your eyes, when you hear music. So we have an idea what is done where in, in the brain and we found surprisingly that when you have, are using the belt, not only the area where tickling is processed, but also the area where you are moving your legs is activated. And you wonder, hey, wait a moment, I tickle you here at the waist and you want to move your legs or you are at least thinking about, that's surprising. And so that's an area which is called premotor cortex. So it is just in front the motor cortex proper. You activate it typically when you are moving when you're locomoting and so on, but it's also used to do imaginary movements. So for example, in the trade, this is a complex movement. You might smile, so if you are playing the piano, that's roughly what you learn in the first few lessons. For our auditory listeners, uh, Peter König is now showing how to tip the tops of his fingers with his thumb, so kind of just playing around with his fingers. Yes, and now I hold my hand just up in front of my face in the same pose, not moving. But I imagine I move my fingers and the same area lights up. So if I imagine certain types of movement, some parts of my motor cortex are active, although I'm not actually moving. We do know, for example, if you do that and you imagine how you swing your arm playing tennis, you can actually improve your swing in tennis. So It's not always that the movement proper is necessary to have your brain learning. And this is also happening with the belt in areas where we didn't expect it. I think looking at the time, we should, although we, I think both of us would really love to have more depth detail about your project, we should try to come to an end with our conversation. Yeah. So our last uh, question Which scientist would you like to have a cup of tea and chat with? You could be that alive. That's a long list. Uh, Emmy Noether. Who? Emmy Noether. So Emmy Noether has found out an amazing property of our world. Um, the Noether theorem states that each conservation law or invariance is associated with the conservation law. So this means if our physical laws don't change over time, this implies that the quantity we call energy is conserved. And that's a channel. So if the laws of physics don't change over space, a quantity we call momentum is conserved. And it's a very general. And I find this amazing because it's understanding our world on a very deep, 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 deep down level. And this is where I would like to understand. And so I, I think I'm fascinated. And of course, there are others. Marie Curie, it's a long list. But Emmy Noether would be first in place. Okay, then thank you so much for this interview. Um, it was very lovely to talk to you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks a lot for the cool questions and your effort and communicate science and support it. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Google Podcast, Spotify 
or Apple Podcast. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw, produced by Alina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palmer, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne, produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan-Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on cognitive science.